People of God, let's open our Bibles now to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's Gospel chapter 1. Now, frankly, I did not intend to preach this text during this season. One of our elders said to some of our college students in a conversation, pastor's going to preach that text this Christmas. And so I thought I should follow his enthusiasm and preach this text. The genealogy that begins Matthew's gospel. Let us pray together. Our Father, we ask that you will help us to be a people that indwells this book, that lives within this book. May every sermon take us into this book, into the Bible. May our lives in turn be saturated with its truths, with the Christ of the Word of God. May we know that this book that is given by your Holy Spirit to us without error in the whole and in the part is your word. And help us to know and to remember that if we are not radically into the Bible, we will be radically deceived. Help us to love it, its preaching, its reading, its proclamation, and help us in private to lose ourselves in its content and to fill our minds, our hearts, our souls, our affections, our wills with its reality. May Christ be exalted, we pray, that those who are with us today who know you, most of us, we pray and hope, will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and those who are lost and undone may see, yes, even in this genealogy, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, in whose name we pray, amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand as we read together Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok 
the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, now I understand that when you go through troubles, we usually do not say, just sit down and let me read a genealogy to you. It's going to be so incredibly encouraging to your heart. But the genealogies are God's word. God indeed has given to us many genealogies, and this one in particular is filled with edification for the people of God, and especially at this time of the year. Matthew stresses Jesus as king, and he begins with the king's genealogy. Now, there are two or three underlying presuppositions as we come to this text that are actually found within it that if you keep in mind will help you to understand and appropriate this text to yourself more readily. The first is, of course, that this is the Word of God. He draws upon the Old Testament. He relies upon the authority of the Bible. And it is one God who has revealed it, and it is one unified Bible. So that the theme of the unity of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, underscores the genealogy. Along with that, God has a plan to save his elect people, and that plan is irrevocable. And most particularly, God's plan to save his elect is worked out in history by God in his sovereign hand. And you also, people of God, are a part of that providential plan, and your part in that plan, believer, is just the stitch that God wants in his overall tapestry that he is weaving for his own glory. So with those presuppositions in mind, we now turn to the text, the genealogy of Matthew 1, and the first thing that we see together is the king of grace described. So he describes for us the Lord Jesus. Now notice verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The king is described in a variety of ways in this very first verse. First, he is described as the new Adam. Well, where is that found? It's found by comparing verse 1 of Matthew 1 with the genealogy and how it begins in Genesis chapter 5 which is the genealogy of the descendants of Adam. And there is a correspondence in language that is unmistakable. He is drawing upon that genealogy, and in that genealogy you will recall that as a result of Adam's sin, we read, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death has come upon all the human race because of the sin of that one man, Adam. But now we come to this genealogy, borrowing that language, but it tells us that something new has taken place. The birth represents a new beginning for fallen humanity. The blessings of the last Adam over against the rebellion of the first. Romans 5.17, for if by the offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. 
Fall in the first Adam, recovery, redemption, restoration in the last Adam. A new beginning. I know I ask you, someone here, you need a new beginning in your life, don't you? You need a new beginning. Jesus is the new Adam. He is the new head of a new humanity. And all who have faith in him have that new beginning in Jesus Christ. A new beginning that leads you all the way to the new heavens and the new earth when your trust is in him. So, he is described as the new Adam. But notice also that he is described as the Messiah, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name in verse 21 of this chapter that God commands Joseph to give to the child. It means Savior. He is our Savior. Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. And all through the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 2.10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. We have these wonderful promises of the Messiah who would come. And what we're being told here is that all of the messianic promises are now fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, this person that would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And so he is the Messiah. But also the Lord Jesus, just in this very first verse, is described as the king. For notice the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and David was the king, the king of Israel. And so when the Lord Jesus is called the son of David, it brings immediately to mind his kingship. Son of David is a recurrent title in Matthew Old Testament language is being reflected here, but the New Testament picks up on it so often. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead of the seed of David. In Luke 1.32, the angel says to Mary, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And from Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus Christ holds the office of king. He is the son of David. But also we find here in this very first verse that Jesus is the heir of the covenant promises. Notice the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what this means, of course, is the covenant made with Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What was that covenant in your seed? Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? Be blessed with what? Be blessed with Christ himself. Be blessed with the proclamation of his gospel. Be blessed with the promise of reconciliation. And in Matthew 28, when we come to the Great Commission, all the nations are now blessed in him as his word is proclaimed throughout the globe. You see, the signature on the covenant of grace is that of Jesus Christ written in his own precious blood. The nations will be blessed. Gentiles will be saved. His purpose will stand and he will do all his pleasure. 
And no one and nothing can stop the plan of God promised to Abraham. His mission will succeed. Now you say, well, it took a long time. And it's still being fulfilled out of the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is true. Matthew Henry says so beautifully, Delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promise. So to sum up this point, Jesus is the promise of a new beginning. He is the Messiah who was to come. He is the king. He is the heir of the covenant promise. And over time, God brought him, working out his purpose in his providence. He is never in a hurry. His timing is perfect. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Well, that's the first thing we see. We see the description of Jesus in this passage. But the second thing to note is grace in Israel's history. Grace in Israel's history. And it is summed up for us, particularly in verse 17. Will you look at it? So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Grace in Israel's history. He is the sovereign monarch of history. And so we are told here that this encompasses the history of Israel from Abraham to David, which would include the covenant with Abraham, the enslavement, the exodus, the giving of the law, Joshua, Judges, Saul, and then from David to the Babylonian captivity, which would include monarchy, the divided kingdom, the destruction of Jerusalem. Is God there in dark times? Yes, even in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem, God was fulfilling his purpose to bring Jesus into the world. And then from the Babylonian captivity until the coming of Christ. Now, when it speaks of this last portion, from the Babylonian captivity until the coming of Christ, that takes us back to verses 12 through 15 about which we can say little, because it includes all those years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, names about which external history is largely unavailable to us. The point being, God was at work then too. In obscurity, God was at work. Underscoring that the Messiah's obscure origins the root out of dry ground, that the world would not receive his pedigree. But nonetheless, God was fulfilling his purpose and his plan. Charles Spurgeon said, he is the poor man's king. He will not disdain any of us, though our father's house be little in Israel. He will condescend to men of low estate. Now, people of God, there is one huge truth that is seen under the topic of grace in Israel's history. We see it all the time when we read the Bible, but we see it particularly in the Christmas message. And what is that huge truth that you need to see and take with you and take to heart and believe and live upon in your life? 
the one huge truth that we see as we think of grace in Israel's history is the historical outworking of God's eternal plan that we call providence. Now I ask, what can be more encouraging for the people of God as we go ourselves through dark times and dark things? Then to remember as we faithfully hang upon the promise of our faithful God to us that he is working out a plan as he has promised. All things work together for good. All things. It's not a pious platitude. It's his promise. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. As our Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. But may I read to you once again from the Heidelberg Catechism about the providence of God? For I know of nothing in theology that is more encouraging than this. What do you understand by the providence of God? The answer in the catechism that is really summarizing the Bible, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? The answer, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to say to you on this Christmas, and we will see it again Christmas Eve, Micah 5, 2, that there is little that can be as encouraging to us as the knowledge that all through The history of Israel, with all of the problems and issues and failings, God still was at work to fulfill his sovereign purpose and plan to bring the Messiah into the world, and he still is at work in your life down into the details. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, nothing will separate you from his love, nothing, because his providential hand works and upholds you. Stephen Carnock, the Puritan, said, If God should in the least moment withhold the influence of his providence, we should melt into nothing. As the reflection of the face in the mirror disappears upon the first instant of our removal from it, you are upheld because God holds you in his hand. And that is true of believer and unbeliever alike. Unbeliever, you'd better hear. You take your next breath because the providence of God has chosen to supply it. And so, people of God, at this season of the year, we look around the world and we see such 
hatred of Christ, such disbelief of the gospel, so many, so many fellow believers in Jesus Christ being persecuted. You're going through, some of you, some tremendously hard and difficult things in your life. And you say, what, what is the world doing to us? Brethren, we are in God's hand. That's the point to take from this. No matter what you know, experience in this life, you can believe that God's fatherly hand is bringing about that which is for his glory and that which is for your good. I repeat it, brothers and sisters, little children, we are in God's hands. So thus far we have seen some broad themes. The king of grace described God's grace in Israel's history. But I want you thirdly to see from this genealogy that Jesus came for outcasts. You noticed, didn't you, as we read the genealogy, the inclusion of women. Now that was very peculiar in Jewish contexts to include women in genealogies. But the point is, Jesus came for sinners, for men and women and children and people of all races and all walks, people like you and people like me. And it is shown in particular in four women that are highlighted in this genealogy. Notice particularly in verse 3, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Tamar, do you remember her? A Canaanite woman, God took away her husband and the next oldest brother. Judah promised to raise up children by his third son, Shelah. Judah failed to keep his promise. Tamar tricked Judah into sexual relations and Perez and Zerah were born. Tamar and Perez were in Jesus' lineage. God's grace to the outcast. Jesus, what a friend for, for sinners, seen all the way back in Genesis 38, a passage I love to preach. But did you notice another woman? We find her in verse 5. Look at it. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, and by who? By who? What, what person? By Rahab. And when you hear the name Rahab, you think immediately Rahab the harlot, Canaanite harlot who lived in Jericho and protected the Jewish spies, but God had a plan to save her and included her among his people, and she is an ancestress of Jesus Christ. Again in verse 5, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by, by whom? By Ruth. Ruth, the Moabite woman, returned to Israel after her husband's death with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Moabites were descendants of Lot through incest. When Malon married Ruth, it was against God's law for him to do so, but God graciously made Ruth a part of God's people and the grandmother of David, the ancestress of Christ. And then we have another woman in verse 6. In verse 6, And Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and that woman was... Bathsheba. David with Bathsheba. Unholy union this. Adultery, murder, 
And yet, she is singled out as an ancestress of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Spurgeon said, Signal was the grace of God in this case, that the line should be continued in this once guilty pair. But oh, what kinship with with fallen humanity does this indicate in our Lord. You see the point, don't you? Let's sum up this point in this way. Maybe the Holy Spirit is making plain to you, someone here, that your nature is corrupt, that you cannot save yourself, that you need a Redeemer. And every name in this genealogy except the name of Christ is the name of a sinner. Everyone. Some notoriously so. Some were terribly victimized by other sinners. But here is the sovereignty of God in real history with a real purpose. God's grace to real sinners. Real sinners. And if we had time in verses 7 through 10 to look up some of these kings and see how they lived, and yet here they are in the genealogy. Listen. God does not save anybody because we're good. We were once dead in trespasses and sins. We were enemies. Every human inhabitant in heaven is a sinner that has been saved by God's grace. Again, one of the old writers, he took upon him the likeness of sinful flesh and takes even great sinners upon their repentance into the nearest relation to himself. And we see here, not only that these women are singled out, but, but they were Gentiles. Gentiles, not only Jews, Tamar a Canaanite, Rahab a Canaanite, Ruth a Moabitess, Bathsheba the wife of a Hittite. And Jesus is the Savior of them all because Jesus is the Savior of the world. Hear the word of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hear the word of God, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ The second person of the Trinity assumed human nature and went to a cross and died for the ungodly. Do you hear that? For Rahab the harlot, for Paul the apostle, and for sinners like us. But this leads us to see, fourthly, the capstone of the genealogy. And for that, let's read again verses 16 and 17, may we? Verses 16 and 17, the capstone of the genealogy. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, Matthew makes it plain that Joseph did not beget Christ. All you have to do is read from about verse 20 of this chapter on to see 
There's this underscoring of the virgin birth of Christ, the virginal conception of Jesus. Christ condescended to have an adoptive father and to be part of a legal genealogy, which would have been thoroughly recognized in Jewish culture. I think that the genealogy found in Luke is the genealogy of Mary, which indicates also that she was of the house and lineage of David. And so on both counts, the Lord Jesus is a part of the house and lineage of David. Hebrew Hebrew letters are given numerical value. And the rabbis sometimes did all sorts of intricate things to sort of try and find hidden messages in the scripture. They're not there, by the way. But it is very possible that Matthew, knowing that there would be this rabbinic thing going on, the numerical value of David is 14. And you will notice that it says in verse 17, all the generations from Adam to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And he's saying, of course, the Messiah has come, David's greater son. But we do see here, if I can quote Leon Morris, he notes that the number 14 would have been impressive to the first century Jews. It is clear that God is working out his will in cycles of perfect symmetry. And that, Matthew is telling us, that God through history, all lines are drawn to Christ. All lines in history are drawn to Jesus. And that means that we should also seek that all lines in our lives, every bit of our lives, go are drawn to Jesus. Matthew's purpose is to help us see that God has a plan to save his people. And to do that, he sent his son. The Messiah has come who brings the blessing of the covenant to the Gentiles And that's most of us sitting here this morning. And it is a genealogy through which God stretches out his hands and he calls you to faith in Christ. God who worked providentially in history to bring the Messiah is at work now also to bring sinners to himself. Oh, may the Lord enable sinners here today to come and may may we who have come bow down and adore Christ the Lord. Now, one of the great themes of this passage that I've underscored already this morning is that God is a God of providence who is working out his plan and working out his purpose. May we go back to that just for a moment because I think it can be tremendously encouraging to you people of God. Surely, one of the overwhelming themes of this genealogy is the providence of God God's eternal plan to glorify his son and to save his elect is worked out in God's sovereign control of history. Christmas confronts us with the providence of God. And that plan to save his own and to bring all history to its appointed end is still, of course, in place. So in the midst of the darkness of the sin of this world, will you take comfort from the fact that God is ruler yet 
which gives me the opportunity to close with one of my favorite quotations in all theology. I read it to you before. If God gives me life, I'll read it many more times. It's from Jonathan Edwards. It comes within a few pages of the end of his great work, The History of Redemption. Listen to this and receive it as comfort for your soul. Edwards says, God's providence may not unfittedly, unfitly be compared to a large and long river having, having innumerable branches beginning in different regions and at different distances from one another and all conspiring to one common issue. After their diverse and apparent contrary courses, they all collect together the nearer they come to their common end and at length discharge themselves at one mouth in the same ocean. He goes on to say, the different streams of this river are apt to appear like mere confusion to us. Did you catch that? The different streams of the rivers, the river of providence, the different streams of this river are apt to appear like mere confusion to us because of our limited sight, whereby we cannot see the whole at once. A man who sees but one or two streams at a time cannot tell what their course tends to. Their course seems very crooked and different streams seem to run for a while different and contrary ways. And if we view things at a distance, there seem to be innumerable obstacles and impediments in the way, as rocks and mountains and the like, to hinder their ever uniting and coming to the ocean. But yet, if we trace them, they all unite at last. They all come to the same issue, disgorging themselves in one into the same ocean. And then he concludes, not one of all the streams fails. Confusion? You can understand how God could actually be at work in this? You look at one stream, it seems to be going the opposite way of the ocean. On the authority of the word of God in this Christmas season, let me say to you, using the words of Jonathan Edwards, not one of all the streams fails. Not one of all the streams fails. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.